Now arriving, the Let's Talk Train Show. All aboard! It's the Let's Talk Train Show for Saturday, April 23rd, 2016. We are recording, this program has been pre-recorded, and I am joined by Shuttle Train Ted in St. Louis. Our guest today is Fred Fraley, the columnist for Trains Magazine. He's a feature feature writer and blogger, as well as a uh, newspaper writer, magazine writer, and editor. Um, And with that... We will take a short break, and we will return. This is the Association of American Railroads Audio Service with a report on the way the nation's freight railroads are building for the future. As the economy grows, so does the need to move raw materials, industrial products, and consumer goods. The vital link in that chain is provided by the nation's freight railroads. And they've taken a look ahead and determined they need to invest more than $160 billion over the next 20 years to carry their share of the load. That's in addition to the more than $200 billion it will cost to maintain the system. The good news is that railroads are already investing record sums. More than $6.6 billion, or almost 20% of revenues in 1999. That's a higher percentage of revenues put into capital improvements than any other industry in America. Railroad officials think they'll be able to increase those investments thanks to the Staggers Rail Act of 1980, which freed them to compete in the market against each other and against trucks and barges. They say that law has already resulted in improved productivity, lower prices to customers, and more investment. Building on that, railroads are confident they will be able to keep up with the economy's need for even more freight transportation in the future. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. Only Donner Rails brings you exclusive railroad action entertainment, giving viewers the best seat in the house as they ride with crews of expedited freight trains over the Sierra Nevada. Check out some of our hot new titles on DVD, like Cab Ride Over Donner Pass. That's good, 97 stop and stretch. See how train concepts are constructed in the famed Roseville Rail Yard. Then climb aboard an EMD SD-60 freight heading east over the mighty Sierra Nevada. When severe winter storms hit the Sierra Nevadas, dumping up to 35 feet of snow, look out. Here comes the flanger. Every time you go up and you're on that flanger and you can't see the end of the engine, it will raise the hair on the back of your neck. Catch a ride with the Flanders Night Crew in Winter Rails Over Donner. See many other titles by visiting our website at www.donnerrails.com. And we're back. This is the Let's Talk Train Show. I am Bob Alkire, and today I am joined by Shuttle Train Ted. Our guest today is Fred Fraley. Fred is a columnist, feature writer, and blogger for Trains Magazine, for which he has written for 37 years. He has also spent a lifetime as a newspaper and magazine writer and editor. 
and soon will be dividing his time with his wife, Kathy, between the Colorado Rockies and an island off the Atlantic coast of Georgia. So, uh, Ted, we're glad you're, I'm glad you're along, and Fred, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show, Fred. Thank you. So I start with our first question. How did you become interested in trains? Early in 1948, the Santa Fe Railway inaugurated a new streamliner between Chicago and Houston, Galveston, called the Texas Chief. And it came through the town I lived, uh, which was Arkansas City, Kansas. Arc City was a division point in the Santa Fe. And uh, uh, every other Sunday in the First Presbyterian Church, you could see Joe Nix in the choir loft. And every other Sunday, he was uh, running the Texas Chief. Well, when I was about four and a half years old in the summer of 1948, my dad and mom took my sister and I to the station to watch the northbound chief come in uh, at about 8 o'clock in the evening. And uh, we'd go on nights that Mr. Nix was an engineer. Well, the first time he uh, uh, peered down from the cab ready to get off and saw my father and I, little little four-and-a-half-year-old Freddie, he said, well, hoist the boy up. So there I was in the cab of a brand-new F unit of the Santa Fe's. Joe sat me in the engineer's seat, uh, showed me what the whistle cord, uh, took the train orders off the clipboard and folded them up and put it in my pocket. And then someone said, it's time to go, and I burst out crying uh, because I thought the train was going to leave and I'd be separated from my mom. Oh, terrible. Well, the next time we did this, I cried again because I didn't want to get off the engine, and that was kind of the birth of my interest in trains. (laughs) Sounds like the typical uh, youngster's introduction to uh, trains and railroading. I'm I'm sure there are many, many kids out there who have had the same reaction. I would agree. Um, Writing for the newspapers, um, in fact, you probably don't remember this, but when you were writing for the Chicago Sun-Times, I bought an Amtrak timetable from you, Amtrak timetable number one. I oh. think I paid. I think I paid the grand sum of five dollars for it. It costs a lot more today. <laughs> oh, would it ever? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of of Amtrak, well, speaking more specifically of the Santa Fe, since that was your influence back then, you were writing for the Chicago Sun Times, which was. Um, well, having grown up in Chicago, there was a there was the the morning paper was the Tribune and the Sun Times, mm-hmm. and the Sun Times always played second fiddle to the Tribune, and it was probably it was probably a money losing newspaper, and the editors were notoriously cheap. So. All contraire, it made money. Oh no! Yeah, I thought it was a better newspaper than the Trib. It had a better staff. Well, it was a better staff, newspaper. Better, better, better leadership than the Trib until the Trib woke up. But now we're talking newspapers, not trains. <clears throat> well, I know. Well, it, it, I agree. The, the Sun-Times really did, uh, was the Chicago paper for a long time. Because everybody likes the afternoon paper anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you managed to convince the, um, the Chicago Sun-Times to let you do a feature article on this on santa fe super c at the time and writing about trains especially feature article was highly unusual back then still is unless there's an accident 
Mm-hmm. So how did you come to convince the Sun-Times to let you do that? Well, the real job was to convince the Santa Fe. Uh, the, I, the editor of the Sunday magazine of the Sun-Times was always desperate for stories. And uh, if a staff person would write a story, it would be done on, the staff, on staff time, and he wouldn't have to pay freelance fees. So I proposed a story. It was pretty exciting. Ride the fastest freight train in the world across uh, from Chicago to L.A. and, and all of that. Uh, he, he immediately said yes. And so then I went uh, to my friends in the public relations department of the Santa Fe, Bill Burke and Bob Garrett, and said, I want to, I want to. Can, can it be done? And I think it went right up to John Reed, the president, uh, and the answer was yes. So they, they put up on the appointed day, this is in April or, no, it's early May of 1969, they put a, a second caboose ahead of the regular caboose, and uh, off we went about 9 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were arrived in L.A. at about 9 o'clock the next night. It was some train. We, we had three of the new... Alco, uh, I believe they were Alco, maybe uh, passenger engines, uh, you know, second generation, and uh, all of 14 trailers leaving Chicago. Mm-hmm. Who else was I, but I have to tell you, trip? I have to tell you that, that the story was pitiful. I mean, it was so amateurish. I was not that good a writer. And, and uh, uh, I read it today, and, and I cringe, you know, if... <laughs> You know, if if I could do it again, I would give anything what I could do with that subject now. But I was a kid, you know. I was like uh, 69. I was 25 years old. And I could write a decent news story, but a feature story of this type, I didn't do so well on. Well, everybody has to start somewhere, correct? <laughs> we do. We do. <laughs> um, you've done a number of blogs on Trains Newswire lately. Mm-hmm. Featuring a bunch of fictitious phone calls with between <laughs> Hunter Harrison, uh, Michael Ward, Matt Rose, and a few uh, and a few others, Jim Squires, mm-hmm. and they have been absolutely hilarious. I love your sense of humor, Fred. However, in the world, did you come up with an idea like that? Well, there was a lot going on, and I didn't know what it was. Nobody did. You know, all these calls going, all this secrecy. This is when, for those who may not know, was when Canadian Pacific uh, some months ago was trying to acquire Norfolk Southern against the wishes of Norfolk Southern. And uh, uh, I was in my car in the District of Columbia driving to my house in Virginia and suddenly coming through the Ninth Avenue Tunnel. I just had this epiphany. I thought, you know, what have I tried just to make up and humanize these people, and 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 because you know everyone was just so angry. All the responses to my blogs about this whole thing have been so angry, and I thought let's laugh a little bit. So I, by the time I got home, I went right to the keyboard and started writing, and I didn't stop for two hours, and that's when I did the first one. And you've been. And you followed it up ever since. Uh, I think there was only one other one. Uh, okay. But it was fun to do uh, because, <clears throat> well, it just was fun. It's and and I hope I hope the CEOs read it and realized I was trying to humanize them a little bit. Do you, mm-hmm. what would what would a conversation between Hunter and and uh, the former um, 
uh, president of the KCS, what would what kind of conversation would that be like? Between a, a which former president? The most recently retired one of the Mike, KCS. Mike Haverty. Mike, Mike Haverty. Mm-hmm. Well, we know, I, you know, they were so. both they were both up from the from the from the pits of the operating department. I and I suspect I. I've never asked either one what they think of each other, but I would suspect they have a, a lot of respect for each other. Uh, um, Mike Haverty is a very demanding man, and and if he hired you and you didn't work, he'd be just like a locomotive. He'd replace you, and Hunter's the same way. And um, <clears throat> So I think I have no idea what the relationship is, but I think they have respect for each other. Mm-hmm. Does let me ask you real, real quickly? Does the the battle between the CPs um, leveling is not just Hunter Harrison? Although everyone, all the rail fans, and pretty much like to put his name as he's the reason they're doing it. But there's there's a lot more people involved in this proposed mergers. Correct. Does does the merger mean? Does the merger talk? Is it, it, it obviously it's, it's a stockholder-driven thing? Um, a lot of people that are around here in St. Louis compare it to when Anheuser-Busch was taken over by Inbev. Um, all the you know the local people. There were some similarities. Louis, You're right, Ted. And they it, it ended up being the stockholders that approved it um, here in St. Louis, and of course everyone in and most of the St. Louisans and most of the workers were like, no, no, no. But it was the, ultimately the stockholders that approved it. And it was a friendly merger, as I recall, in the end. In the, in end, the end, it was a bear hug by, by the European uh, brewer that, that Anheuser could not escape from. But but they didn't go to a proxy vote, to my, to my knowledge. You know, big fights and lawsuits and all that. Well, did, what's the similar? I mean, the, you know, NS is not going to be, you know, said no. Um, there's, now there's rumors that KCS is now going to be the target. Um, CSX has already said no. Do they are they going to let it simmer for a while and try again? Or I, they... I wish I I wish I knew the the Hunter Harrison said very clearly if it's got to be a proxy contest, which means replace the you know vote of shareholders and replacing the directors who would then replace top management. If it has to be this way, it has to be this way. But then he backed down. And and we're all left to wonder. And I, the most plausible reason was that uh, he needed he needed somebody uh, to lead the charge uh, with shareholders, and the obvious person was uh, 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 Bill Ackman, who, who's a brilliant investor. He's he's had a terrible year the last twelve months. But anybody who bets against Bill Ackman uh, better have a banker to loan him money. Uh, because he he's a very good investor, and and Ackman's bad track record in 2015 and early 2016, I think, just took all his liquidity out, and he couldn't lead the charge. And I I, I suspect that's what happened. Uh, and what happens next? I don't know. Uh, it's it's anyone who knows me knows that I'm a proponent of National Railroad. Uh, networks, uh, so that we have railroads that have the reach of a FedEx or uh, uh, United Parcel Service, and 
the fans don't want this. The class one, most of the class ones railroads don't want it. The fans don't want it. They love their pretty engines, and they love their historic names. I mean, I grew up along the Kansas City Southern. I'm a huge KCS fan. Uh, I would be sad to lose KCS as an independent business. At any rate, and the CEOs of the, most of the railroads don't want it because they're living in Fat City. Uh, and they don't, you know, they can screw up their operations, they can screw the customers, and it doesn't matter. There's, you know, they keep raising rates, and the customers keep accepting it, and we have this wretched railroad system. Uh, and so, I, you know, I want a national network. I want two or three of them. And I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. Uh, it, if Hunter had gotten hold of NS, that would not have been the final railroad. There would have been a third railroad ultimately joining CP, Canadian Pacific, and Norfolk Southern. It would have been, quite logically, Union Pacific or BNSF Railway. And, and you know, the, the things would have fallen. But, you know, there's so much... The other railroads have created so much fear among the politicians and shippers that I don't know how we're going to get to to that point. We will someday, but I don't know how. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Hunter, um, you've written about his management style, which is called precision scheduled railroading. That's what he which calls it. Which on the surface, hmm? That's what he calls it. I don't call it. Okay. All right. He calls it. Yes. Uh, on the surface, as as You've said it's, it seems pretty simple to put in, in practice, but at the same time it can be very complex. Mm-hmm. So just real quickly, can you give us an overview of what um, pre- precision scheduled railroading would mean for railroading in general? And then the second part of that question is Claude Mangeau, uh, Hunter's successor at CN, seems to have gone out of his way to undo much of Hunter's methods. So with that happening how practical in reality is the hunter harrison version of precision scheduled railroading yeah let, let me give you my my thoughts on this the 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 core of precision scheduled railroading <clears throat> is 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 velocity in other words you speeding up uh, the uh, intense use of assets. I, I guess that's a better way of saying it. Intense use of assets. In other words, uh, the example that I got when I did a story when, uh, about Canadian National when in Hunter's last year there in 2009 was that they would run a uh, a service between points A and B, a, a intermodal service, and there would be a a for example a 125 well uh, uh set of equipment would take you know du- 125 double stack uh wells 250 containers they would run this train each way every day it would never be longer would never be shorter it would never have a second section it would never be annulled and and it was a job of marketing to fill the train. How do they do that? Well, then you you have you have really cheap rates on Sunday and Monday, and really expensive rates on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and that tends to even out the use. Now, this worked wonderfully for CN. Now, take that and and apply it to BNSF Railway with with the the most advanced. Uh, premium intermodal network in the world. 
and they run out of Willow Springs, Illinois. Their premium uh, intermodal yard in Chicago, something like 11 to 12 uh, high priority uh, Z trains every day going west. And every Monday, they take seven or eight train loads of empty container uh, wells and store them as far away as I've been told Memphis. And 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 wherever any place they they have places they can put them, but they're all hundred to three and four hundred miles away from Willow Springs. And every Thursday, they start bringing them back. And Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they bring them back, and so because they're running longer trains, extra sections, because the demand is there. And uh, who who is making the most the higher profit per dollar revenue? These two methods. Well, uh, CN is. Who is maybe making the most profit total? BNSF. Uh, uh, so, but Hunter doesn't want his locomotives. He doesn't want his cars to sit still. When he came to CN, they had let's just pick a number: four thousand locomotives. He said that's too many. Within a year, half of the locomotives were stored. Somewhat the same thing happened to CP when he went to Canadian Pacific. They're not going to be on the market for years. Uh, they just got lines of stored locomotives because he, he made better use of the locomotives, running the same amount of traffic, maybe more. I, I'm told that, that one of the things he concentrated on, his people, was the were the coal trains running from Crow's Nest Pass in Alberta, western Alberta, and Roberts Bank, British Columbia. These are mainly going, I think, to Japan, and it's metallurgical coal. And when he got to CP, there were like 32 train sets in use. And the last time I heard, talking to one of the division-level people, they were down to 18, running just as much coal. And, and, and so, you know, you don't need to spend all that much money on equipment to, to deliver the same service. And that's that is what I, I and then then he's that's the core of what he's doing. I'm sorry to take so long in this explanation, but he also is is a brilliant man in the UC yards. Uh, I, I I was looking forward almost to what how he would how he would figure out and reconfigure the the uh, merchandise network of Norfolk Southern. Uh, it's a complex railroad. It's it's got too many yards. Everyone knows that. But how do you how do you make it more efficient? And this is what he's brilliant at. Mm-hmm. What he's not so brilliant at is his treatment of people. Uh, and 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 he, what he did at CN, as you go back to the example of this, you you run the same equipment back and forth and back and forth, and you fill it with pricing. The customers hated it. So when Clude, who's just as brilliant in his own way as, as in fi- finance and, and so forth and leadership as, as Hunter is in operations, the first thing he did was publicly apologize to the customers, the intermodal customers in particular, and said we could be kinder and friendlier. But he did not, I don't think, particularly undo much of anything that Hunter did. Okay. All right. We need to take a break, and uh, we will be right back. See you then. Join us and help us make the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north-central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. 
Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. Are you tired of having to click and click and click to watch train videos on the web? Well, why don't you do what I did and give your fingers a break? TheRailChannel.com has great shows every week. They show contemporary and vintage programs that focus on real railroading and model railroads. If it runs on rails, I'm sure you'll find it on the Rail Channel. The programs are updated every Monday, and best of all, you can sit and watch it in full screen with only one click. Head on over to TheRailChannel.com right now. That's all one word, TheRailChannel.com. Watch it. Operation Lifesaver presents a 60-second lesson in common sense. Deodorant is not a shower. It's wrong to feed a baby salsa. Don't wear a kilt on a windy day. Never ask a bride why she's wearing white. Don't keep mouthwash next to the antifreeze. Heave on hoe, not on heave. Don't sniff a green sausage. Close your mouth when you hang glide. Don't tap dance on the roof in an ice storm. Don't go swimming in leather pants. If you're in a parade, wave. Never eat a burrito before a road trip. Don't wear lace to a rodeo. One's a malt ball, one's a moth ball. Always walk with pie. Never practice nunchucks in a crowded room. Never leave a plant near the litter box. Don't buy sushi on sale. Flowers with thorns make lousy corsages. Don't put a knock-knock joke in a eulogy. Cherry chapstick doesn't taste as good as it smells. Always take your shirt off before you iron it. Do I look fat? The answer is no. And most importantly, never, ever, ever forget your common sense around railroad tracks. A train can come from any direction, on any track, at any time. A message from Operation Lifesaver. Visit commonsenseuseit.com. And we're back. This is the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, April 23rd. And just a reminder, this program has been pre-recorded, so we will not be taking calls. I am joined today by Shuttle Train Ted as my guest host, and our guest is Fred Fraley, who is a feature writer, blogger, and columnist for Trains Magazine. One more question about Hunter Harrison, and then I'll let, uh, let Ted take the Take the microphone, and we'll go from there. Um, Hunter is approaching 0 for 3 in attempts to acquire or merge with other railroads. And some of them, it sounds like, or it looks like, they probably would have set the, uh, the tone for the national railroad system that you have mentioned. Uh, my question then is, is Hunter seeing something that the rest of us can't see, or is he just an egomaniac, or maybe a little of both? Well, he's he's certainly got an ego. Uh, one of my favorite interviews of my whole career was a 68-minute interview I did with him in, in uh, 2009. Uh, I, I carefully transcribed it. Then I had a hard disk crash, and, and I thought it was lost, and I and I found I'd saved it a couple of weeks ago. I, I look forward to rereading it. He's an interesting guy, uh, uh, but he's not an egomaniac. No, no, I... I think that he kind of thinks in a way like I do that he wants he, he number one he sees a lot of stupid railroading going on and and let's take let's take Norfolk Southern it had a reputation from the days of Bill Brosnan when he was vice president of operations of Southern Railway in the 1950s and as president in the first half of the 1960s 
of being a disciplined railroad. And that reputation followed into the creation of Norfolk Southern when when Southern and Railway and Nor- Norfolk and Western merged in I think 1983. It the the organization that resulted from that was very disciplined. Uh, and uh, this this continued uh, into this century, uh, and it disciplined in every way. I met people, you know, there was there was accountability, there were demands on people, uh, they were tough on the on the operating on the operating crews. Remember the 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 uh, lack of toilets on the locomotives, uh, and and you know Steve Tobias. Uh, epitomize this. He was he was a military school graduate, a, a army officer in Vietnam, uh, tough as nails. Well, Steve retired. Uh, uh, David Good, who was admittedly not an operating guy, a lawyer, but but he 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 had the sense to give the operating people a long leash and support them. He retired. Uh and and when the test came uh in in 2009 uh uh when the great recession hit Norfolk Southern was the the slowest to to bring down its costs in in reaction to less revenue and then the catastrophe of 2014 the the bitter winter in the north followed by the huge traffic surge as soon as the thaw came early in in 2014 uh, NS uh, was caught unprepared. So was CSX. Uh, uh, I I know some of the top operating people of both railroads, and I like them, but they they didn't do too well. And you look at this, and Hunter is thinking, okay, here's NS got this coal franchise, and where do they store their coal when it gets to Lambert's Point? They store it in their cars. They are. They own a jillion dollars worth of coal hoppers, and they use that to store the coal until they mix it for ships. And you know, here is CSX over uh, on the other side of of Hampton Roads in, in Newport News, and they they bring their their coal in and they dump it immediately into piles and and they mix from piles. And God, you just think you could have a field day at NS. He must have thought that. He must have thought the same thing about CSX. And and if he could apply his methods, the results he would have, I I think would be very impressive. So you know, I I think that's what he wanted to do. He, I I think there's some ego there, but it, and and there was also he wanted a better railroad system. He wanted he wanted a bigger railroads, because after all, he he had done about what he could do at CP in terms of of of. of he fixed it up. It was not in good shape when he came. Uh, the track was pretty rotten. Uh, sidings were short. Uh, it, it was just, you know, and, and their big U.S. route from Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, to Calgary was was all uh, 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 dark territory. And, and you know, in, in 2015, how can you do this? Uh, and so he'd done what he could, kind of at CP, uh, you know, in terms of the major changes. I think he wanted a bigger, a bigger uh, tablet to to write on. That's uh, what I think. But you know, he's got, everyone has an ego. Uh, you know, you guys have an ego. I have an ego. Hunter has an ego. I think his is under control. Okay. 
Uh, Ted, any questions from you? Yeah, one of the things I wanted to stay on and freight for a little bit, um, with the downturn in the oil oil trains and the downturn in the coal trains, did people not see that? You know, did the executives not see that? And um, what does that is it? You think it's going to be a temporary thing? I mean, granted, the the no. the, <laughs> the I, I I do too. I agree. I mean, we're finally getting away from cold. You know, I live in St. Louis. You know, Southern Illinois has a lot of coal fields, you know, that have been mined already. And there are ta- whole towns and schools that are collapsing because of the coal, you know, the cold veins and stuff mm-hmm. like that that are no longer in use. So, of course, I'm, I understand that, especially when there's solar and some other stuff. Do, one of the things that I want to know is, do you think that, there's enough market to find, you know, that the marketing people in all these, in these different railroads can find something else to put in its place or is there something that can be put in its place? Well, I'm going to sound like a terrible pessimist. Uh, The marketing departments of the class one railroads are centralized and, and they're organized by product. And there's nobody out in Timbuktu beating the bushes for new traffic. They they visit their national accounts, and that's about it. And and how many times have I been told by by shippers? I see the CSX guy, the UP guy, the BNSF guy, once a year when they tell me what the what the uh, what the the, the rate increase is going to be. Uh, that there are no there are no people out there looking for new business. I, I don't think at the local level. At the local, contrast that with a railroad like the Indiana Railroad, uh, which is uh, runs between Indianapolis and and uh, Eastern Illinois, and from Southern Indiana to uh, Terre Haute and Terre Haute, and through trackage rights or, or haulage rights to Chicago. Those people go out there and they beat the bushes like mad, but there's no equivalent of that anymore in the class ones. So, so it comes down then. Okay, then uh, uh, is how about intermodal, which is organized entirely differently? Yeah, that's going to grow, I guess. Uh, but, but it's going to take some ingenuity and some some creative thinking, and I'm not seeing it right now. I mean, I mean I just, take a look at take a look at Norfolk Southern. They 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 got rid of the triple crown service. This unique uh, uh, thing where where you, where you know, you could you could take trucks right off the road and couple them together without a, without a freight car. So so right. theoretically, you have you have one locomotive carrying you know, two hundred of these things. It does fine because the weight's so small. You don't have all the steel of the of the freight cars. And and was it really that hopeless? Uh, and and I I don't understand it. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. the The trick is that that if you want to, if you want to increase intermodal, you've either got to to find uh, you got to think differently to find new ways to serve the market. And I'm not the thinker, so I don't know what they are. Or you've got to go for for shorter distances and and. And the shorter the distance, the harder it is for railroads with their fixed costs and 
and their inability to run a train every hour on the hour between points A and B, they're at a disadvantage. And But some railroads have done it. Florida East Coast has a main line, 351 miles long, which is exactly half of what, what uh, perceived wisdom is about how short a profitable railroad intermodal business can be. And they make a lot of money on this. They, you know, because they have what they had between Jacksonville and Miami, and they figured out how to how to, how to make money. And by the way, uh, it's velocity. Hunter Harrison would love the Florida East Coast. Yeah, one of the things you know. Last weekend we went down to uh, Rosenberg for the railroad 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 fest days, and going and coming, we we basically did the Interstate 30, 49. For Interstate 44 thing, and one of the things that always gets me is how many semis are on that road. Yet from Springfield to St. Louis, there is a the Cuba sub that runs right along the highway, basically parallels the highway, and it's hardly used. It's there's some intermodal, but it's hardly used. And I mean, I see, I counted for for five minutes, I counted 115 trucks. Going each way on on the highway for five minutes. Is this is this Chicago St. Louis we're talking about, the, or this St. Louis uh, Springfield, Springfield uh, Missouri? Okay. Yeah, you know St. Louis Springfield has a whole bunch of trucking terminals uh, companies based out of the Southwest Missouri. One of the things that really always surprised me was people say that they can get stuff sh- faster by truck than they can by train. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? In, well, in if you're that, if you're talking about the Cuba sub, we're not in Havana, folks. <laughs> Between St. Louis and Springfield, Missouri, it extends on to to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, uh, Amarillo, and the West Coast. Uh, it, it St. Louis for BNSF Railway. That's who owns the Cuba sub. There's always been a weak intermodal link, and and they haven't figured out how to serve it. But once again, I hate to sound like a broken record. But uh, you have the, the, this east-west barrier, the Mississippi River, right at St. Louis. Uh, there is almost no through intermodal traffic through East St. Louis. In other words, from Union Pacific or BNSF to NS or CSX. Uh, it's if you want to send a, a container, you pretty much have to dray it from the western railroads in East St. Louis to the eastern railroads. How how much different it might be if 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 BNSF were were part of a larger system that included CSX or NS, and they just breeze right through. They'd be able to sell this traffic across there. There'd be no no barriers. Why St. Louis is 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 an iron curtain? I don't know, but it is. Uh, and. I don't know if I'm responsive to your question, but but you mentioned the Cuba sub and and, and that hit a note with me. Yeah, I mean, and there's so much you know going. And there's there's a line that goes into Memphis too, the BNSF. One of the things that gets me, you know, and, and the trucks versus the trains is why can't people come up with a bypass like through Kansas City, St. Louis? You know, they the CSX just cut the the old B and O line in O'Fallon, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, for they say it's going to be it's just temporary when when intermodal picks up, but why yeah, can't people? Sure. Come? <laughs> We've seen that before, right? Yeah. Um, but why can't we bring 
you know, Chicago has this this constant backlog or constant mess trying to get through. Why can't we these 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 dispatchers swing stuff south through you know Fort Madison through Kansas City, St. Louis, instead of putting in this um, by Chicago bypass, uh, the, uh, the Alina Rail bypass, which by most people, the, the public hearings that they're having, the residents don't want it. Yeah, the NIMBYs hate this uh, bypass railroad. Uh, uh, I've talked to the, the businessman who's behind this. I know at least one of the people who are advising him. They're good people, uh, but come on, you know. I, the reason everything goes to Chicago, Cindy Sanborn of CSX told me this last year. He said, everyone goes, we all go there because we're all there. And it's the easy way to do it, and 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 everyone knows their division of rates when you talk about through service. In other words, the division of rates is we're going from from point A through Chicago to point B involving two railroads, and the railroads have agreed on the division of rates. Now, if Norfolk Southern and BNSF began to exchange any amount of serious amount of business at Kansas City. That would involve a, a, a recalculation of the division of rates. BNSF Railway would get uh, commensurately less, and NS would get more. And BNSF doesn't want to do that. <laughs> and and it, it's on and on and on. It's it's and and meanwhile, why aren't railroads spending more of their money to 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 uh, slick up Chicago and make it make it. Uh, greased, you know, no friction. Well, they don't do it because, you know, they don't want to spend money that helps the other guy on the other side of the east-west divide. It's it's very provincial. It's easily it's easily solved. Merge the damn railroads. And then you see so many creative solutions to the flow of traffic because because there's no division of rates problem. Uh, at least, you know, it, it it's one-tenth of what it was. Uh, but here I go again. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Because we're going to switch into passenger now. Uh-oh. With the downturn, with the downturn in traffic – Freight traffic has why hasn't the railroads picked up and helped uh, Amtrak and, and made it more on time? Actually, is it it, still, isn't it much more on time lately? Well, there's still a lot of padding. You know, I was padding. While we're talking, just before we got on the air, I was curious about there was a 14-inch snowfall in Denver, which means in in the mountains west of Denver, it was probably two feet. And you know, we're in mid-April, late April, and and uh, I thought, well, I don't know how the California's efforts are doing. Hell, they're on time, <laughs> uh, or close to it. Uh, yeah, well, they so, were they were two hours late yesterday because of a rock slide and and. Uh, the fourteen, the fourteen feet of snow. Yeah, well, you can't get past a rock slide easily. Uh, I, I, a smart railroad ought to say, "I need, I want to maximize revenue." I've so so. Unfortunately, there aren't that many demands on on former coal routes that are on bad times. Imagine Union Pacific. It's like two hundred and fifty miles from North Platte 
to the, the to the south end of the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. It is double track CTC maintained to the nth degree, and their traffic's down forty percent. Uh, too bad nobody lives out there. You could run some passenger trains easily and, and not delay anything else. Uh, it's, it's an opportunity for Amtrak if they could pursue it, but but what are they going to put the people in? Uh, stagecoaches? Their equipment is maxed out. It's old, maxed out. And they have cars on order, but not that that uh, non, not coaches, sleepers, you know, other things that they're being delivered at a snail's pace because the contractor is learning on the job, and and they have these the second-generation cars that would be used in the Midwest that the contractor is has failed the the uh, uh, safety test so much that that uh, they're gonna probably give it up on on the whole thing. So yeah, there's I mean, not, there, there's yeah, there's there's really opportunity for Amtrak if it wanted to propose something that maybe a smart railroad would say, yeah, I'll talk to you, but but Amtrak doesn't have the ability to run more trains. Would a new Amtrak president? Do you see any of that? Um, <laughs> oh, I heard that last one start. Go ahead. Um, I was. Do you see any of that changing with the new administration coming in and uh, possibly a new, a different Congress? Um, anything can change. Um, uh, it all depends who's who's going to be the. We're talking about president, new president of the United States, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I. I don't think Hillary Clinton would be anti-Amtrak, and I have no reason to think that Donald Trump would be. He's, it's not even been on his radar scope. I, he hasn't said a word about it. Uh, uh, I, I, he might have some interesting ideas as a businessman about how to run Amtrak. Then the other question is, who will succeed Joe Borman? Uh, and 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 so so it's possible. Uh, uh, that the Senate will will tilt Democratic, which will help. In theory, it will help Amtrak. But I'll get. I want to say something else about that in a minute. It is fifty-fifty, I think, and and it's like a, a one in four chance the House will go Democratic if 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 the Democrats uh, run against uh, a uh, Republican. If a Democratic nominee runs against a Republican nominee for president even more unpopular than <laughs> Mrs. Clinton. Uh, but who knows? The, the fact is, in, in 45 years, Amtrak has been on a starvation diet, probably 40 of those years, and it's through Democratic presidents and Republican presidents, Democratic congresses and Republican congresses. The Republicans make more noise about privatizing Amtrak and cutting off the subsidies. But the Democrats do no better by Amtrak. Not really, I don't think. And with that, we need to take a break. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. This is the Association of American Railroads audio service. And today we're reporting on the early days of America's railroads. When the first railroads began operating in the United States in 1830, the entire nation had a population of a little less than 13 million people. Most of them lived in communities or on farms huddled near the Atlantic coast or along navigable rivers that fed into it. Inland, there were great natural resources, good land for farming, forests enough to provide shelter for millions, mineral wealth beyond imagination. But those resources were largely untapped. In fact, 
The entire region west of the Mississippi River had a population less than that of today's Richmond, Virginia. The railroad would change all of that. As tracks were laid west from the Atlantic, new towns sprang up. Industry and commerce developed. Agricultural production increased. Mountains, rivers, distance, these were no longer insurmountable barriers to trade and travel. Railroads conquered them all and in the process helped transform the United States from an agrarian society into a mighty industrial giant that spanned an entire continent. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. And we're back. This is the Let's Talk Train show for April 23rd, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My co-host today is Shuttle Train Ted. And our guest is Train's feature writer, blogger, and columnist, Fred Fraley. And as when we went for the break, we were talking a little bit about Amtrak. And my question then for you, Fred, is where do you think Amtrak is going to go with its new president? Um, there's been Joe Boardman has been saying we need to keep the system together. Congress said Amtrak needs to go uh, focus on the Northeast Corridor more. Right. Uh, uh, the system the system will stay together because if it doesn't stay together, there's no Amtrak. Uh, the the members of the Senate from the West vote for admittedly inadequate uh, spending on the Northeast Corridor, but they vote for something because they want their service in the West, and it's a trade-off. And you, you separate the two, then I think Amtrak is, um, is, is, then has to be completely re-engineered and, and rethought. Uh, I'm not saying that the Northeast Corridor should remain as in the same company that has the Midwest short haul services and the long distance trains. I'm saying that if you take the Northeast Corridor out of Amtrak, then you, you it, there there are political consequences, and you have to figure out a new thing that can get national support. Well, the, 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 you know, I'll, I'll just walk into the Northeast Corridor dilemma here. Uh, uh, it it makes i don't know half a billion dollars a year over its its operating costs which sounds impressive until you realize that they're half a billion one half of a billion 500 million until you realize that there is something like 30 billion 60 times that much of 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 unmet needs capital needs for the corridor the the northeast corridor can't even begin to to uh, uh, fix itself up, they're spending maybe a billion dollars a year in capital improvements in Northeast Corridor. When when the need is really five or six billion over a, a per year over a period of ten or fifteen years, there there are proposals to fix this. Um, none of them have 
gotten the attention because actually for for a new structure to appear, a new way of financing the Northeast Quarter, you have to pretty much throw Amtrak in bankruptcy. You have to have a crisis. And um, are they in a crisis? I don't know. They're in a safety crisis, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the states partnering together? Uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest, we have uh, Washington, Oregon, and Oregon partnering with their Cascades. Do you think that the states are going to play a more active role, possibly partnering together for some long-distance trains, similar to what happened in 1972 with the Lakeshore Limited before Amtrak took it over? I know there were many problems with that, but do you see the states working well, that, together? Well, yeah, that, that, was, that was the one and only long-distance train. <laughs> Created yes, with with total state support, and Amtrak very quickly made it part of the national system, and I think and I know it got the states off the hook. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, the states are angry right now. They are in rebellion about the high cost of the Amtrak subsidies, uh, and and one reason is, God help me, I'm going to walk into this bear trap, but but Amtrak's accounting is fiction. It's like a novel. Uh, who oh, knows I, I know, because I'm a retired allocated. accountant. Right. Uh, who knows how the, co- the what the real costs are and how they're allocated? Amtrak won't tell. Congress, in, in the 2008 reauthorization of Amtrak, felt just as frustrated as I sound tonight and said, uh, commanded Amtrak to come up with a, with a, a transparent uh, costing so people really would know what does train X cost versus train Y? And Amtrak did the stuff, and then, and then, in about oh, 2012 or 2011, uh, applied the zoo costing system, and and I don't know what they discovered because for 18 months they would not report the financial results of trains because the the results under this under what was probably a fairly honest accounting system, were too shocking to let people know. For instance, what if these results showed that the Northeast Corridor lost far more money or made far less money in their over-the-rail operating costs than Amtrak had been saying? What if the state-supported services, the states were paying way too much if, if if you actually stacked the deck honestly? And so they they took 18 months for them to to manually allocate costs so that it completely mirrored the old system. Talk about and nobody called them on it. It's amazing. So well, then, so the states uh, let me just finish the answer. The states are furious. I think half the states, if they could, would would hire private operators. But you saw what happened in Indiana. It was so hard for Indiana to get Iowa Pacific to run the Hoosier state. Who wants to go through that? And and and, and it's just it's too difficult for, for these understaffed state uh, 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 departments of transportation to undertake to replace Amtrak, but they would all love to in a heartbeat. I mean that's what that's what kind of people along the Southwest Chief in western Kansas and Colorado when Amtrak came up with this exorbitant amount of what it would cost to uh, build up the line and, and you know 
bring Am- that line back up to um, Amtrak standards. And then amazing, yeah, amazing. yeah, except I, I would I would I would wager if you talk to people at BNSF who know the capital needs of that route of the Southwest Chief between Newton, Kansas, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Lamy, New Mexico, they would tell you that what Amtrak is saying is cost is very reasonable. It's not exorbitant. It's a lot of money. That's that's mm-hmm. without debate. But but but, what, what, but BNSF what has never argued that that that. Uh, the, the rail is worn out. The signal system is worn out. The, the, the track structure is worn out. It needs replacing. But but then up here in the Pacific Northwest, when they were talking about reinstating the uh, North Coast Hiawatha and the um, uh, the, the train between Portland right. and Salt Lake City. Yes, sir. The, the the costs were just as outrageous, and yet the track is a whole lot better than what was on the Southwest Chief. Yeah, and and this is the cynicism of the railroads. Uh, Am, Congress wanted Amtrak to study what would it cost to reinstate these trains, as we know. And so Amtrak had to go to the host railroads and say, what do you need? And and they said we need gold plating, <laughs> and 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 it, the results were out. You said outrageous. I'll say outrageous. That was outrageous. I don't think the Southwest Chief instance is outrageous. It's 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 a it's a piece of railroad hundreds and hundreds of miles long that the railroad doesn't the BNSF railway does not need does not want or professes not to, but up here these these mainline railroads in the northwest the the the, the Seattle Salt Lake City train Minneapolis uh, 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 St Paul to Seattle via the former Northern Pacific Railway uh, I was stunned by the numbers that came up. But you know, you invite me to say what would make you happy. I'll give you a number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what do they, you think? And, go ahead, Ted. I was just going to say, what do you think it would take to bring service back to, um, you know, to the Desert Wind or to Las Vegas? Because the the L.A. the San Francisco high speed train to Las Vegas has been spinning its wheels and spinning its wheels and been reinvented and reinvented. Uh, we still don't know whether we're – I don't even know where it is now. Do you think we'll ever have Las Vegas service again, daily mm-hmm. service to Las Vegas? Uh, well, I I think it's highly likely that there will someday be a high-speed rail service between L.A. Basin and Las Vegas. And it will be uh, financed by Saudi Arabian money, Chinese money. Uh, uh, they're floating in dollars, these, these countries. And, and, you know, China is, is rebuilding the African railways. <laughs> and, and if you look at them, the photos are stupendous. These, these are class one standards. These are Powder River Basin coal train standards because China wants those minerals. And it's spending the money to do that. Well, they do that for passenger service. There's been little whiffs of that. Uh, the federal government's not going to do it. Forget that. They're not going to do it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 too much of a not in my lifetime. Of course, my lifetime is not that long. But but uh, it, it's just too much of a political football. Uh, and so the the federal government is not going to under underwrite new true. 
220 mile per hour high speed rail lines. I'd love to be proved wrong, but my challenge is all these Popeye optimists is prove me wrong because I've been right so far. Right. Uh, but a a foreign foreign investors with a long uh, a long term horizon over select routes in L.A. Las Vegas is my goodness people love to go to Las Vegas from L.A. Uh, is is a prime candidate, and I know there have been attempts at this. Nothing has gone. You need, you probably need some foreign money that has long term outlook. But there aren't that many. There aren't that many. There aren't that many places you could apply this. Right. A couple and weeks ago, we talked. Well, can we? We need to continue this um, in in a few minutes because we we're at the top of the hour and we need to take our break. So we'll be right back. And the latest news. See ya. <laughs> now arriving at the Let's Talk Train Show. All And welcome to the second hour of the Let's Talk Train Show. I am your host, Bob Alkire. I am joined today by Shuttle Train Ted for April 23rd, 2016. My guest, or our guest today, is feature writer and blogger for Trains Magazine, Fred Fraley. And we will be right back after this short message. Join us and help us make the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north-central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. And we're back with the Let's Talk Train show for April 23rd, 2016. Our guest today is Fred Fraley. And we were talking about high-speed rail, and Ted, before I unfortunately interrupted you, you had a question along those same lines, so go ahead. Hello? Hello. Ted, Sorry, there, there we go. I, okay. Yeah, I am. A um, <laughs> couple of weeks ago, we talked to Doug Alexander. Ted, you have to quit falling asleep <laughs> when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, just, I was dr- taking a drink, and I forgot to... To bring the mic back. A couple of weeks ago, we talked oh, to what I Doug do. Alexander, um, and he he rode the inspection train from New Orleans to um, Jacksonville. Um, we talked about they're, they're planning on taking the uh, city of New Orleans and extending it to uh, Orlando. Number mm-hmm. one, would you ride that train? Do you think people will actually ride that train? Um, 
And what do you think the service would be? You know, we talk about, you know, bathrooms. We talk about food shortages. It's kind of like taking the Texas Eagle through San Antonio on into Los Angeles that when on those days when it does that. How, how do you think, um, number one, why I guess that's why they did it is to combine the two trains. Um, but do you think people will ride, will ride that train? And what do you think the service is going to be like? Well, if, if I don't know what the service is, how can I tell you what it would be like? But I would ask, did they ride the train before Katrina? They did. I don't know that it was. It was a tri-weekly service. Tri-weekly services are doomed to fail. Uh, on the very on the very surface of it, I mean, the more often you can run a train, passenger train, between point A and B, the more riders per train you're going to get. And it was proven, uh, if you need an example, uh, between San Jose and Oakland and Sacramento by Gene Skoropowski when when he was uh, hit, well, was was part of Amtrak California, uh, uh, and he kept adding trains, and the business went up exponentially. So, so if you start with three times a week, it, you know it, it's not going to be uh, a land rush of people coming to you. But Lord, I'd ride it because you know my future home or part-time home will be 100 miles from Jacksonville. So uh, 60 miles from Jacksonville, I'd. I could have ridden it this weekend. I had to go from Jacksonville to New Orleans. I would have loved to have taken that train instead of this crappy Elijah plane where you you have to pay for a boarding pass, pay for a seat, and pay for your luggage. And and you you suddenly realize, well, that cheap fare wasn't so cheap. At any rate, uh, I I digress. I, I, I would love to see it run again. There's lots of capacity on CSX. I don't know. If CSX is the problem or we have to build all new stations or not, I, I think the stations that were there before Katrina are still there. Mm-hmm. And I, and those that aren't, I think places like, you know, along the coast where they may have been destroyed, those those municipalities, I bet, would chip in and build the stations. One of the, one of the things that uh, we're going to do in the later later this year, and I'd, I'd actually – love to have you on again as part of the the uh, moderating panel but we're going to take a take the show to a university um a bunch of stories just came out on the wire la- last week how college kids are taking to the rails again i mm-hmm. i took the rails to college from st louis to warrensburg um every week for the first two years until i got a job that kept me planted in town um and now college kids are, are seeing the fairs are, and timetables are getting more and more. Um, the trains in Illinois, of course, they're connected. How do you, do you think that the Amtrak and the colleges are starting to make it click again? I, I wish they would. The, the classic example of passenger rail in colleges was Illinois Central. And, and the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana and Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Uh, those are two huge markets, and they all drew their students primarily from the Chicago area. And it was a huge business for Illinois Central. And and it, it befuddled, I see, how to predict, particularly at the end 
of a holiday period or at the start of a semester how the traffic would go you, the, and IC did surveys and and uh, the kids would say oh I'm going to go back Saturday well uh huh nobody goes back to the last minute and IC's eventual uh, solution to this was to to create one of you know they had seven trains a day leaving Chicago heading for southern Illinois or maybe six and they would they would have a mile long string of coaches at Central Station at 12th Street, and and they would load a train and they would start with Coach One, load it, turn the lights on in Coach Two, load it, three, four, five, six, seven, time to go, and they would lift the pin at the last car, and that was what went, and and they never left anybody behind. It, it took a lot of trial and error to realize you didn't need to survey. Just, just be totally flexible, and and college students. Well, I, I think, I think younger Americans uh, are less wedded to cars. But the evidence is all around us, and and the youngest Americans who make economic decisions are obviously college students, and it's a natural market, and 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 so, you know, uh, are they returning to this relationship I described in the sixties? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, Amtrak can't put a mile-long string of coaches at Union Station and, and load them from the front and tell you fill up, you know, tell it's train time and you close the gate and cut, lift the pin, and there you go. I mean, you but, yeah, but, but if you look at the see that line now and the CN uh, mandated uh, asshole count, they're running that many, almost that many cars <laughs> empty now anyway. Are they really okay? Well, uh, too bad they're empty. But you know that 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 kind of traffic was 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 essentially holiday traffic uh, and holiday uh, binges, uh, not day in day out, week in week out. Um, and you know, let's face it, we hope our college students stay at school when school's in session, so they're not out there riding every day. But still, I mean, using that example and also using the other, the Chicago-St. Louis corridor, um, Amtrak has ridership, especially serving um, a couple of major colleges along the Chicago-St. Louis corridor, with the mm-hmm. expansion of service, uh, ridership has has increased exponentially. There's a tremendous amount of college students at uh, at the Bloomington Normal Station, between uh, running between uh, Bloomington and St. Louis, or running between Bloomington and Chicago, so the market the is there. I have, Amtrak, does, does Amtrak add cars on weekends? I don't know. Uh, no, they don't. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. So <clears> they've <throat> got they, they've got a fixed consist of trains every day of the year. Sounds a little bit like Canadian National Intermodal Service under Hunter Harrison, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Intense it does. use of assets. And and uh, uh, I'm not sure you should you should you should uh, equip Amtrak to handle uh, you know uh, end of semester start of semester college levels, but but if you have the equipment, it's good. To, it's a way to use it. Well, the, the the thing of it is, though, at the same time, it's not so much end of semester start of semester. It's not so much semester break and that. There's a lot of weekend travel that's being generated. Um, you know these, by, these uh, college on, students on both have to get their they have students. to get their clothes laundered by mom, and 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 
get some good food in them while they drink their beer at home. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. That 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 market's well, there. One of the oh, things yeah. that I, I I did a I did actually wrote went to Carbondale and I rode up to Chicago one time and I asked and, and I asked because we actually interviewed the the chancellor. One of the things I asked when, when I went on this was why are you going are you going home? No, they're going. These are interna- A lot of them are international students going to Chicago for the weekend to sightsee and, and do stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the colleges around Chicago. I meant this. It, there's nothing like it in the world. Uh, all there's a great opportunity for Amtrak. Uh, I, I guess uh, if you had all the equipment in the world, they got what they got. True. Um, One, changing topics. Mm-hmm. Well, go ahead, Ted, and then we'll change we'll change subjects. No, go ahead because I was gonna I was gonna change topics too, but go ahead. Okay. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier. You were comparing the, the uh, short-line railroads and the Class 1 railroads to customer service. And one of your blogs, you wrote about hypothetically some of these short lines maybe taking over some of the local, I don't know, for lack of a better term, maybe boxcar traffic or LCL traffic. Um, mm-hmm. operating yes, I over did. The, yeah, that the Class 1 railroads don't want. Do you ever see that happening? Do you ever see the class one saying, "Yeah, what the heck? Why not?" Especially now with traffic way down. Well, they ought to want to do this. In other words, my proposal was this: that that you have all this mainline traffic of the class ones, and you have nobody out there beating the bush for, in the marketing department for for carload business, and and um, uh, you have lousy local freight service. Other words, you know, they don't have enough cars to run the local day, or we, we, we put so, we we annulled it yesterday and the day before. And now it's got so many, so much work to do, they can't do it. So we're going to run by a lot of our commitments, and back it goes to the yard. And man, this makes uh, the customers so angry. So I thought, why not uh, a regional railroad? Uh, be awarded a franchise for let's just give an example the BNSF railway between Chicago and uh, Kansas City and this regional railroad would would market local service uh, and and then operate with its crews the trains on BNSF railway between Chicago and Kansas City uh, with divisions of rates that made it worthwhile to everybody. And, of course, the first problem here is <laughs> Joe, the, the vice president of operations of BNSF Railway, whoever he might be at any one time, saying, you're going to let this railroad with this broken down GP7s out here on my main line no way. All these Z trains running, you know, I will see you in hell, boss. Uh, and and then you have the union saying, BNSF, you're going to let XYZ non-union railway, regional railroad run trains on this railroad. I will go on strike. Now, there's a lot of reasons not to do this. And then there's also the, I didn't invent this I did not invent this idea myself, so therefore I reject it. And that's probably the biggest problem, the the not invented here. Uh, and and so the railroad culture right now is is 
I don't want to call it sick. I call it weak. And and no one is thinking creatively. Maybe they are, but I can't see the results. And and so you, you have this. We're just going to raise rates every year. And and if you don't like it, go to the trucks. And 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 if we lose business, we'll make it up in intermodal. We'll make it up in coal. Oops. Goodbye coal. We'll make up in oil. Oh, goodbye oil. That's coming home to roost. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the oil boom has also seemed to have gone bust. And so yes. what's what's happening with that? Is it going to come back or is <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a, a humble man, guys. There. I, I'm, I'm very humble. I, I wrote a story, a feature story in Trains. I said the railroads have beaten their way back and they're not, never going to leave. And and, and the, they were great as long as the entire pricing structure of oil in the 60s or $70 a barrel stayed the same. And when it changed and all sorts of things changed, and the economics of, of crude oil by rail changed. And they changed drastically in ways I didn't expect, and I was humiliated by this. Uh, uh, if you had me read the story that I, I wrote in, in 2013 or 14, you know, a big eight-page story, if you punished me to read this publicly on talking about trains, uh, I would rather die <laughs> because it has changed drastically. But the fact is... It, the oil companies didn't anticipate this. The railroad companies didn't anticipate this, and of course Fred didn't anticipate this, and it happened. And and all the the oil pricing differentials that made coal coal crude by rail so attractive they, they vanished. Uh, and yet, if 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 you operated entirely by economic realities, there would be virtually no crude by rail today. There's still quite a bit. And uh, I'm I'm led to wonder why, but I think there are some long-term contracts involved here, and maybe some long-term beliefs by by uh, the uh, uh, the oil companies that maybe we should keep this up and not just let it collapse. Who knows? It's it's a it's it's a work in progress, and 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 oil prices, like all commodity prices, are so volatile. It's it uh, only a fool like me would have predicted <laughs> uh, that any status quo will ever uh, continue to exist indefinitely. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that you're a huge KCS fan. Yes, sir. And KCS has somehow managed to remain independent. I'm I'm guessing probably a lot of that may be because of their big investment in Mexico. I'm I'm would be I I can't see KCS not being an attractive merger partner merger partner or acquisition. So where do you see KCS say in the next 5 maybe 10 or 20 years? Are they going to stay independent? Do you think they'll be acquired or do you think they'll be part of some of these groups of regional railroading, real regional railroads, sort of like, oh, maybe like what Genesee and Western is doing, uh, going on, up and acquiring a bunch of short lines, but it, or no, something maybe entirely that. different than that. Uh, uh, KCS is still independent because of Mike Haverty. Uh, he, when as soon as he showed up, things started happening at that railroad, and and. 
it created a stock price for KCS that has always been at a huge premium, not a huge, a, a significant premium uh, uh, to the price earnings ratios of the the buy, uh, railroads that might have bought it. Uh, KCS makes a lot of sense for most railroads, but there there are ifs, ifs, in each case. Union Pacific. Would love it, but but the antitrust implications are staggering because Union Pacific has a lock on the chemical business in the um, Gulf Coast, and and what Union Pacific doesn't handle, KCS does. There's no way Union Pacific could buy KCS. Uh, however, Union Pacific would love to have the franchise. Uh, of KCS in Mexico from from uh, Laredo Nuevo Laredo to the hinterlands of Mexico City and points in between they would love to so Norfolk Southern would like KCS between Dallas and uh, Meridian but they might not like it from Kansas City to Shreveport and and BNSF uh, actually would probably be, in some respects, an ideal partner. But they all say too expensive because there's the obstacle of the, of the present stock price. KCS per, per, per dollar per share of earnings has always been too expensive for any other railroad since Mike Haverty arrived to swallow. So they don't. I was told this like a week ago by one railroad guy. I mean, it hadn't changed. Hmm. Do you think the Do you think the the new canal, the Panama Canal, how will that change the makeup of America's railroads? Oh, if I knew that, I should be emperor of the world because nobody knows, and and you know, estimates are all over the map. Uh, but I'll I'll tell you one thing. The the big shipping companies are building ships. That couldn't even, would 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 split apart trying to go through the Panama Canal. Uh, the economics of ocean shipping are changing faster than the economics of railroading and trucking. And and I I have I end up with two conclusions, and they're contradictory. One is that because they've expanded the canal, but the shipping companies have expanded the size of ships at twice the rate they've expanded the canal, there will be very little uh, change. And then I go back to L.A. Long Beach. That's the worst place politically to land a, a container of freight in the world. The people in those neighborhoods hate the ships. They hate the railroads. They're the lifeblood of those neighborhoods. They hate them. And and, uh, the costs of doing business at L.A. Long Beach are huge. The political problems are insurmountable. BNSF Railway has been trying for for close to a decade to put a a, uh, a port-side intermodal terminal right there so that you don't have to go up this 15-mile spur of an interstate highway that's that is, is is truck density is unbelievable and 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 the neighborhoods have pretty much defeated them uh they tried and tried and bnsf bnsf railway has excellent lobbyists and government affairs people matt rose can 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 uh, could could talk vladimir putin into 
loving um, uh, the former Soviet republics, he wants to take over again. But but you they haven't. So what I'm saying is, L.A. Long Beach is is turning is a permanent high cost uh, uh, restricted access place, and so maybe it'll work a little bit. Now, who will it work for? I don't know, because uh, you've also got shipping from China working down to South Asia, and it makes it more practical if you want to go to the east coast of the U.S., take a ship from Vietnam or Malaysia or Thailand or somewhere uh, through the Suez Canal and go through the Atlantic Ocean to, to the east coast. So you know, that could affect that. The fact is, nobody knows. I was talking to the president of Florida East Coast a couple of months ago, and the Florida East Coast has has, has uh, done everything in its power to encourage the big shipping lines to uh, go through, that will be going through the Panama Canal to make their first port of call in the United States in uh, Miami. Miami has 50-foot harbors, uh, and and uh, the only other ones I'm aware of right now are up at Hampton Roads at the moment. Savannah doesn't have it. Charleston doesn't have it yet. But who knows? Uh, the, the, the shippers haven't tipped their hand. The, the shipping companies haven't tipped their hand. It's a mystery. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked little bit here and there, and not really hit on it, about the financial dealings of the railroads. And you have a background writing in financial, uh, a lot of fin- a number of financial publications. So I was wondering, with that background, what do you see as the financial health of the railroads currently, and maybe say over the next five to ten years? Currently, their financial health is wonderful. Um, you know, railroad presidents in the 1970s and 80s and 60s and 50s oh, would have given up years of their lives to run railroads with the financial health that that the the big seven have today. Uh, it's it's great, and 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 they would have been unbelieving to see the state of the physical plants today, which are very good, uh, and yet. Look at the weekly traffic numbers coming out. Uh, you can read on, on online the, the Association of American Railroads uh, every Tuesday, their weekly traffic reports. You know, coal down 40%, crude oil down 30% versus a year before. Uh, these are staggering numbers. And, and it, people that I respect and talk to and trust uh, question the continued viability of of the two big eastern railroads uh and and number 1 and and they also worry about the big western railroads but but the, particularly the eastern railroads how do you come out of of a loss of business this catastrophic uh and and yet maintain your traffic base i'm not I don't think for years and years and years, if you if you talk about tons carried or, or carloads carried, 
CSX and NS are going to get back to where they were in 2013 or 2012. Uh, but that's okay if they can adjust their networks to cope with that. And and uh, I I know, I mean, I have to know. I mean, if, if they're not doing this, then this is a catastrophe. So they are thinking about how to do it, but how, will they make the decisions, the hard decisions? And the decisions will really be hard where where departments are fighting each other and and divisions are fighting each other and 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 a CEO has to say here's what we have to do so do it and is it going to be done and if it's not done uh, uh some future hunter harrison is going to come in and swoop up CSX or NS or both uh I hope they'll do it but you know would it be nice if they would would own up to their problems Make the terrible adjustments, and then be swooped up. <laughs> we get my national networks. Okay, end of commercial. <laughs> um, what about the other two cold, major coal haulers, then BNSF and, and UP? What about uh, the effects on they them? They are so big. For that traffic loss. They are so big that they they can weep and wail about stranded assets. Stranded assets means that 250 mile line. Of uh, Union Pacific or North Platte to the to the start of the uh, Powder River Basin, that's a big deal. Uh, and they you know they've re- I've been told they've recently lowered the top speed of trains from 60 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour, and I think that's probably a good idea. In other words, let's 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 lower the maintenance level. Let's lower the whole thing here because. We have far less traffic. The other alternative, which I uh, suggested in the column, was it's all double-track CTC with, with uh, control points and crossovers uh, every 10 miles or so. Well, every other 10 miles on one of these main tracks, just, just mothball it. But maybe just going from 60 to 40 is, is just as good an idea, which must make the UP engineering people writhe with agony because they pride themselves on their track structure. Rightfully so. Union Pacific is the best engineered railroad in America. Yeah, it was a shock here in Washington. We used to have 48 coal trains each way on the Jefferson City sub, and now we're down to a whopping 30 for the whole day. Yeah. 48 a day, you're telling me? Yeah. Loads and empties? Loads and empties. Wow. Because they were all going, well, either to the power plants, the you know, here, just east of us, or they were going down to Cairo and down into Georgia. You know, they were mm-hmm. getting transloaded to Georgia. So yeah. it, it it was the cold, the cold route to southern, southeastern United States. Uh, but to pick up on what I was saying, uh, the Western Railroad's, are so much bigger than eastern railroads and and they have they have the ability to absorb these blows more easily what they they but they have the same problem what do we do you know <laughs> we've got all this investment and it's 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 going away i thought for a while the powder river basin business would hold up because uh, it was you know, far less polluting, et cetera, et cetera. But in the last year, it is it's collapsed just like the eastern, almost as much as the eastern. Now, what about export coal, though? 
What about it? Tell me a commodity that's in short supply <laughs> in this world. I don't know of one. Everything is in abundance. Wheat, corn, coal, gold, everything. Uh, and 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 ocean shipping rates are are almost to the point of being free now. I mean, there there was actually a Journal of Commerce reported a couple of weeks ago there were rumors that there were shipments from Asia to Europe at negative rates. Negative rates means we pay you to put your cargo on our ship. Uh, and it was I never heard of a customer or a shipping line, but but Journal of Commerce was. You know, their reporters are picking this up, and and it's just like that now. And and the sh- the shipping rates for for corn from South America to the Mid Atlantic ports, such as as Wilmington or or uh, Hampton Roads, uh, are so cheap that that the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the imports of corn from South America will grow 50 percent this year, which is still minuscule, but. But it's an idea of how everything's been upset. Along going going back to the coal issue, and 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 we go up to Vancouver a, a fair amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go up through a couple of areas, and I mean, it's all, it all seems like the vast majority of traffic, uh, at least on the CP. We don't really see too much of the CN, but at least on the CP is still coal traffic. Uh, mm-hmm. We, for getting on the ferry to go over to uh, visit my in-laws in Victoria, we... You can see Roberts Bank from the ferry, the, by the, Robert, the big CP coal terminal. Yeah, Roberts Bank. And there never seems to be a shortage of coal going there, so I, that's I, that's kind of why I was asking how you, how export coal well, traffic well, is Well, the, the difference affected. is that this isn't steam coal that goes into... Uh, uh, turning your lights on is metallurgical coal that uh, Japan doesn't have any metallurgical coal. Well, not much. And this is prime, you know, high, high uh, BTU coal for steel making. And, and CP and, and it's, uh, it's, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the company tech or something in Alberta. Uh, they, they supply Japan as steel making coal and it's held up pretty well. Okay, so different different type of coal. Different, yeah, apples and oranges, I think. Okay, okay. Um, we're getting to the point where the baby boomers are retiring, including a lot of uh, long-term railroaders, mm-hmm. and it's taking a lot of institutional knowledge with it. How's that going to be replaced? Have people been trained or trial and error, or is there just a new generation that's going to go do things completely differently. That's a very good question because because I wonder the same things. Um, the Great Recession of 2009 uh, led to a lot of retirements of people who had, you know, the keys to the institutional knowledge of the Class One railroads, and and the people who replaced them didn't know these things. Meanwhile. The the desire to to keep costs low and keep Wall Street happy and the analysts happy, so that no corporate raider comes to take you over, was so great that they've railroads have pretty much hollowed out their networks of the boots on the ground, the train masters and assistant superintendents and and even senior clerks who 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 could 
deal with stuff going out on the line. For instance, I've I've, I've heard that something like 15% of waybills information is incorrect, and and there used to be people out there who could see these train costs consists of incoming trains at 3 a.m. and figure out, well, this is wrong, Let's fix this up, and could do it. But, but you know, uh, railroads say, well, we're going to hire 10 more people in service design. Service design is, is train scheduling in headquarters. And and so we're going to we're going to get rid of the third trick train masters in in uh, Timbuktu. And that's what's happened. And so you've hollow, hollowed out the 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 center of the railroads in between the endpoints. And and meanwhile and I get the sense that we're not training really astute train dispatchers or chief dispatchers. We're training people who, who study a monitor eight hours a day. I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's the best way to learn is to do it, and no one's out there doing it. And so, so to your question, it's it's a very good one because I I, I don't I don't see a new Hunter Harrison out there coming out. You know, Hunter knows how to move the cars. You may hate him, and you may dislike him because he wants to take your Norfolk Southern logo and you know send it to the to the graveyard. But he knows how to move the cars, and and where are the people who know how to move cars coming from? I don't see him. Ted, talking when when you talk about the old, you know the old time railroaders and and then the new class, do you think PTC positive train control will happen on the the second scheduled date? Or do you think it'll be dragged on through and and hopefully, as some some of our listeners have have suggested, um, the railroads hope for a different political leadership so that they'll it'll, that'll just go by disappear. Uh well, I, <laughs> I, I, railroads are having trouble with PTC. Uh, Carl Ice, the the CEO of BNSF Railway, uh, wrote to uh, Congress that his railroad was having trouble implementing it. It it just wasn't working. And it was in inexplicable manners. And and if BNSF, which I think was further ahead than any other Class 1 railroad uh, in implementing PTC, or, or at least of the big four in the U.S., can't make it work. Who's going to? And so that's 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 a warning. But yet I was stunned after Congress gave a three-year extension to read that what was it CSX and NS or was it UP and CSX? Two Class One railroads said with three more years they couldn't do it. Well, now I'm saying I'm saying you should be ashamed. You know, if you're going to say three years out, you can't do it. Uh, and and woe to the railroad that doesn't have it in effect then, because the politicians are going to eat eat the flesh. And probably maybe they should. I I, I don't understand it. Uh, and 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 if it's 
because if you three more years, come on, you had a you had a timeline, you you couldn't do it. So I thought when they got the extension, that was the end of it. You know, they, they do it. Then suddenly these railroads start saying we can't do it. Well, why not? Because you've been holding back. You've been you've been, you know, you've been lying to There's, us. The 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 consensus of a normal everyday U.S. citizen um, feels, you know, like is safety. You know, the the, the PTC was brought out as a safety um, control mm-hmm. after all the after the Chadsworth accidents and the yes, sir. Amtrak accidents and all that. But yet we have cities that um, want quiet zones. We have cities that are want to know about bridges, uh, you know, how safe the, their, bridge, their river bridges are, how safe the trains are going through their, their towns, and why are they going through the towns and not around them. I mean, is it, a pub, is it really that big of a public uh, relations issue, or should, should the local townspeople be really concerned about what's about railroads and, and safety. If you look at, at, at the statistics of accidents and deaths and everything, uh, the, the 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 success of railroads improving their safety records has been phenomenal. It's 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 stunning actually when you look at it. Uh and and positive train control, if it's ever worked out so that that it actually works and works in a way that doesn't slow everything down to a halt. Uh, well, will make it even more safe. I, I I was a skeptic about positive train control at first. I I thought it was a political uh, uh, reaction to a, to a one-time event, and and yet and yet, uh, uh, good railroaders are still dying because of stupid mistakes they make. And and I I see now that that it's important to do PTC, and if you ever do and make it work right. Once again, you know the fear is that it will be so restrictive that everything will slow it. Everything will slow down to half the speed it was because it's 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 you know it's the triggers are so sensitive. But if it ever works right, it's it's, it's going to be a, a, another exponential improvement in railroad safety. Uh, but you know, but you mix that up with the other problem of of the NIMBYs that I don't like to be awakened by a whistle. Uh, I don't like more trains going by the, my house, uh, epitomized by uh, uh, Southern Florida with the uh, All Aboard Florida uh, trains and, and the fact that, that the people between Orlando and West Palm Beach won't get stops by this service, so they hate it. And it's it's so irrational. And you have county government spending millions of taxpayer dollars to oppose it, and they're going to lose. <laughs> uh, you know, because because our federal laws love railroads. And we need to take a break. And we'll be back in a minute. Hear that? That's the sound of new homes being built in Windsor, Colorado. That's stores and restaurants opening. That's people punching in at a new job. And that is a freight train, a big reason why so much is happening in Weld County. I'm Weld County Commissioner Sean Conway. 
Over the last three years, our county has seen economic growth and job creation. I'm Jason Martinson, the Logistics Process Manager for Vestas. We're the world's leading manufacturer of wind turbines. Our four new plants in Colorado employ over 1,700 people. We built here because access to freight rail helps us move our turbines to market. When large companies like Vestas come, so do suppliers, other businesses, and more jobs. It's what economists call Oops, okay, I, I call it sorry. freight rail effect. Freight rail, delivering goods and materials to every corner of America and bringing jobs and economic growth along for the ride. Visit FreightRailWorks.org. Okay, sorry, Ted. I had to cat walk over my computer and mess up the switchboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was, what I was going to say is, Fred, getting along with the NIMBYs and the things, do you think that the railroad, Im, railroad company's images need to get improved? We have <clears throat> numerous, stories, numerous stories and numerous stories by the, the, meet, the local medias and stuff about trains blocking crossings for an extended period of time. And, you know, the local, the local townspeople, the local mayors, the local police and fire are, are saying it's a public safety image or public safety concern, but we have no control over it. What, what happens? Should we do some, something different with the STB and the FRA to – um, have the lo- more local contr- uh, more local input, or is there is there just an imagined problem? Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Your sister. <laughs> uh, did you did you hear what I said, Fred? No, there was there was a blip in the communication. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um. With all the local towns, you know, the townspeople, the public, the fire, the police, there's been a lot of stories written uh, and increasingly more every every month about train, about railroad companies blocking roads for an extended length of time. Do you think we need to change something at the SR, at the Surface Transportation Board slash FRA to get more local input into those type of situations. God help us. Uh, first of all, uh, during the, the great the great freeze-up of 2014, there were a lot of trains parked in a lot of places with nobody on them for a lot of time, and, and that was a problem. It's not a problem now. Uh, what is, but, but in place of that, the railroads are all trying to run longer trains. Longer trains are, by definition, at least slightly slower trains. And so, the, yeah, there's a problem there. But but uh, let's be let's be realistic. Do you want local governments telling railroads how to run? I I don't. And it's it's you know the NIMBYs get control, and to the detriment of everyone. Uh, to the detriment of our economy. Uh, no, I don't want to. Well, I, I talked to one of the um, people that I think it was New Jersey that a train was blocking a major cro- a major street leading to a hospital. But when they called the one eight hundred number and, and the police called the one eight hundred number, they got a hold of Jacksonville, Florida, 
And yeah. the people in Jacksonville, Florida, had no idea where this train was actually at and the fact that it's a proximity to the emergency right. room. Right. When, when, the when, when they, they went to the crossing, there was a 1-800 number to call at CSX. When they called the number, guess who they got? They got CSX police. CSX police are having a clue what's going on on the railroad. And they they have a clue if anyone's robbing their trains, but this is different. So then they have to go and call the the uh, they have to figure out, okay, well is this train dispatcher in Florence, South Carolina or Baltimore, Maryland or where and then call da 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 da, da and the patients die by the time <laughs> you get the train dispatcher. Uh, that's a problem, but but what are you talking about? What are you proposing? Uh, that 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 what? Uh, and probably that train is not stopped there because the train dispatcher wants it to sit there forever. There's a problem somewhere. Uh, train dispatchers. One of the things a good train dispatcher is if you train them right, if you if you give them the right tools, uh, they know. Uh, where to stop a train and keep the crossings clear. And and I've seen so many of these things on, on the big railroads. They're very good at this. Uh, they say, here's a 7,400-foot space. You can stop a train. And and because, you know, they don't want this kind of stuff to happen. They, they you know, they don't want to say, Grandma died because the ambulance couldn't get to the hospital because the, the train was sitting there for 48 hours and, you know, we couldn't keep her alive. Of all your blogs that you've written since you started writing blogs, I mean your blogs, not not your feature articles for the Trains mm-hmm. Magazine, which one did you get the most response from? The ones that, uh, I mean, this is statistically I can demonstrate this, but you know we're we're operating you know live here and and, and I. I, I instinctively think it's the ones that challenge the railroad industry and it gets people of all sorts readers of the, my blog of all sorts uh, uh energized and my idea of a blog is i should write what i want to write and then i turn it loose to the world and if things go the way i want them to go i should never say another word in that blog uh, and let people have at it, and I love it when I get hundreds of responses, and I never say another word uh, because everyone's learning. Everyone's, you know, it, it's it's a great experience. When I have to jump in there, it's because someone has been been uh, either so off topic or so abusive or so uh, incorrect that I feel like I have to set the record straight. But I, all I want to do is say my thing, and and I don't want to dominate the blog after that. I want I want the people who read it to take it over and take it where they want. And and the blogs that get the most responses and, and the ones who's – and the responses that are most interesting are the ones that are challenging the railroads to be better. What, that was a what great question, the by the way. What inspirations for some of your blogs? And or your columns. Uh, let me answer it a different way. Let me ask the question differently. Hey, Fred, 
how do, what's the inspiration for your feature stories? And and the inspiration for my feature stories is what is there out there that I would like to experience that if I'm not a journalist writing a story for Trains Magazine, I would never, ever get to do. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to when I was at the Chicago Sun-Times writing the Super C. You know, uh, I, I could I could be... I could be the 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 person who does this for everybody else and describes it. And and one of the things that has made the the feature stories I've written for trains since 19 uh, when you still had narrow ties in 1978. Uh, one reason that has made them okay was that. I went into them with an incredible uh curiosity and I just wanted to I just wanted to experience what this was what this was like uh, uh and this goes back to my first story for trains it was published in 1979 it was uh August and September 1979 uh I felt that I w- Having written this terrible story about riding the Super C uh, across the West a decade earlier, I felt that I was a better rider and that that I was ready to try to do something at the level that I thought Trains Magazine desired. So I thought, what is it that is driving me nuts? I just want to experience it. It was my hometown railroad, Kansas City Southern. I lived on on the Dallas line. This this poor old broken down piece of railroad that I thought in the 1960s would be abandoned, and and, and I never experienced the main line, you know, Kansas City, New Orleans, and and I had I had dreams about it, you know, and and so I said, okay, that's what I want to write about. So I wrote a letter to the editor of Trades Magazine and. and 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 said what I wanted to do and, and to my amazement he said okay in fact in fact we'll pay your expenses so now it was up to me I, and I wrote a letter to the president of Kansas City Southern and said what I wanted to do and I said of course it's going to be no like go away and back came a, a call from Tom Carter the newly installed president he said sure and of course what I didn't know was was how much Kansas City Southern was digging out from the the, the the pit it had fallen into, and they wanted to tell their story. Anyhow, uh, it's it's the greatest impetus for my feature stories has been curiosity. I want to know about this. Columns are different. Columns are 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 opinion, not reporting. Opinion, and sometimes reporting, but generally opinion. And so that's a whole different thing. And blogs are, lordy. Anytime I have a coherent thought, I make a blog. <laughs> I have too few of them, though. I don't know. You've put together a, a, quite a quite a bit of coherent thoughts, and this has been very enjoyable. I've loved I've loved this conversation too, guys. You you ask good questions. Thank you. On a little bit lighter note, what's your all-time favorite passenger train? <laughs> okay. Uh, probably the Canadian, uh, only because I it's a train I try to ride twice a year, and, and to do that I have to make all sorts of concessions to my wife, who is a trainophobic, 
And so, you know, I'm, I'm gone five days at least. And so, I, you know, I have to do many nice things for my wife. Uh, but the runners-up are, are several. Um, the California Zephyr from Denver to to uh, uh, the outskirts of Oakland. The Coast Starlight's a wonderful train. The Empire Builder, the Auto Train. Uh, Auto Train is unique, and, and and most people listening to this probably haven't written it, and it's so unique. It's such a wonderful, different experience. Uh, and and I, I, I'm not going to mention trains in other countries because, uh, admittedly, my experience is very small there. What about what about pre Amtrak trains? Pre Amtrak. Uh well, uh, I rode I rode the Santa Fe a lot. I rode the Rock Island a lot. The Twin Star Rocket from Dallas to Kansas City. Wow, I did that in high school like three or four times visiting my sister. Uh, uh, but you talk about pre Amtrak. Oh, Seaboard Coastline. Man, they were right there with the Santa Fe. They did. They ran first class streamliners. They were so proud of themselves. Uh, Tom Rice told me who was the, the president of Seaboard Coastline when it was formed in 1967. It killed him to have to join Amtrak. He loved his passenger trains, but but often it's the trains I didn't ride that 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 you know kind of burned. Kansas City Southern, my hometown railroad, had had no trains through Sulphur Springs on the Dallas line. They had the Southern Bell and the Flying Crow between uh, Kansas City and New Orleans. I went to school for four years, 1962-1966, at the University of Kansas, 30 miles in Kansas City. Why didn't I ever just ride the the, the, the southbound Southern Bell from Kansas City to Neosho and, and its counterpart north an hour later back to Kansas City? You know, I beat myself up over this. In fact, I beat myself up today. I, I took Southwest Airlines from New Orleans to Kansas City, and I thought... Why isn't there a flying crow to get on at at uh, uh, 9 a.m. in New Orleans and 9 a.m. the next day when I need to be in, New or- in Kansas City? It would arrive. What a great trip that would be, but I never did it. Are you going to be in Kansas since Kansas City is your home, your hometown? Are no, you no, gonna be no. In Kansas- I, the, I'm in Kansas City. I'm in transit, as they say. I'm, I'm on a train-watching expedition of gargantuan import of gargantuan uh, length are you going to be by chance going to be back in Kansas City for the streetcar opening on May 6th no sir I will be uh-huh. in 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 uh, St. Simons Island Georgia walking my dogs on the beach wow you've written um, a couple of books Blue Streak merch, or rail fan books, basically Blue mm-hmm. Streak merchandise and Twilight of the Great Trains. You've also contributed to three others, at least that I could find: Rolling Thunder, Indiana Railroad, and Katy Northwest. What mm-hmm. was the inspiration for each of those? I oh, can well. kind of guess at Blue Streak merchandise. Well, Roland Breedenberg, uh, who was the general manager for Southern Pacific's Eastern Lines, all the railroad west uh, east of El Paso gave me the uh, permission to go into uh, a building in, in Houston that held uh, records they were about to destroy. And it included 
you know, piles and piles of train sheets, dispatcher train sheets I brought home. But I also brought home uh, uh, several suitcases full of of uh, transportation department memorandums about the operation of their trains. And and I was so stunned by how hard it was to run the Blue Street merchandise between uh, St. Louis and Los Angeles on time. All the extraordinary extraordinary efforts that had to be made inspired that book. Twilight of the Great Trains. I'm I'm actually prouder of because I think it's it was a. It, it 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 looked at the pasture train in a way that no one else ever had and ever has, which is as a business, and and how railroads reacted to in every case of the failure of the business, whether they embraced the failure or fought it, and and uh, in most cases I was able to to either talk to people who ran the railroads or ran the pasture services, or I was able. To, to get access to confidential records that, sh- that had the dollars and cents of revenues and expenses, and and I love doing that book, and and I particularly love the way Indiana University Press produced the the second edition of the book. It is it is uh, uh, a beautiful book, <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know in terms of its physical qualities, and I'm proud of of the editorial quality. I'm also proud of something else. Fred the writer designed this book. I actually laid out every page. I chose the type style. I wrote the captions. I I did all these things a book publisher would do myself, and I'm just a lowly writer. And it's a really pretty book. Not bad for a dumb guy, huh? <laughs> it is. It's a very impressive book, and it's one of the, um, for me, it's one of the more impressive books that I do have in my collection. And I've used Thank it as you. a reference point many times. Good. Uh, Ted? Well, it looks like our time's about up. Um, we're running a little long, but, of course, this is all going to go on iTunes and all the other um, podcast uh, forums, so you'll be able to listen Fred, besides Trains Magazine, how can people get a hold of you and follow you on your adventures around the country? Uh, you really can't. <laughs> I mean, my, you know, my my email address is is uh, public knowledge because it's published every month with my column. Usually, unless I the the little tagline is written otherwise, it's f Fraley f f r a i l e y at gmail dot com. And uh, uh, up to a point, I'm happy to talk to complete strangers <laughs> because they're my audience. You know, I, I you know I, I work for the people who read my column and read my feature stories or read my blog. They're my they're they're my customers, my employees, and I worship them. And I'm always glad to hear from them, especially if they're mad at me. <laughs> I have one final question to wrap it up. Yes, sir. At various times. And in various ways, you've written about Michael Ward, Jim Squires, Matt Rose, Rob Krebs, uh, Wick Mormon, Michael Haverty, just to name a few. How would you rate some of the? How would you rate them in particular, and some of the others, uh, some of the other railroad CEOs? Good, bad, indifferent, outstanding. Well, well you're innovative. asking me to make enemies for life. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 
you don't have Jim to answer Squires, that question if you don't I've want met. to. Jim Squires I've met soon after he became president of Norfolk Southern, and in a two-hour dinner, he never opened his mouth. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, what is Jim Squires? Michael Ward, I don't know very well. I know him slightly. I'm, pre- I'm impressed as hell by the way he he's a fighter. He's he's a he's a strong executive. He's not an operating guy. He's a coal guy <laughs> in his background. He's done pretty well. Uh, uh, Carl Ice is is a is a it's at BNSF is a, a, a good good operating guy. Uh, I I don't think he's well. I, it remains to be seen what is what his legacy is. Matt Rose is is one of the uh, he's gold plated. I mean he's he has people skills that are beyond my belief. Uh, he one of the great one one of the things a good manager of any company has to do is have good people skills and nobody has Matt's. Uh, uh Lance Fritz at, at Union Pacific know nothing about. Uh, I won't comment on him. Uh, uh, Clued Mungo at CN. Really impressive guy. I think he was the architect of CN's buy all these regional railroads policy when Hunter was CEO. And I think Clude was the guy who made them happen. And the coup of all these was the Elgin, Joliet, and Eastern purchase by CN uh, whenever the heck it happened. But it, it, it completely made Chicago irrelevant to CN. You just fly around it. You don't have to go through it anymore. It, it's just brilliant. And only CN could have done something like this because they had a route structure that made it possible. Uh, who am I leaving out? You heard, You know what I think of Hunter. Uh, mm-hmm. Have I left anybody out? Um, no. Yes, no. yes, the guy at KCS. I oh yeah, Mike him. Haverty. Right. Yes. No, Mike. Mike is retired. Uh, he is replaced by David Starling. David is near retirement age. I don't know David Starling. He's struggled the last couple of years. Is all I can say. He has really struggled. His credibility with Wall Street uh, is is kind of low. He's, it's just been tough. But when you're number seven with a strung out network like KCS has, it's it it is tough. So you know. Um, my favorite David Starling story is one he told Railway Age in the interview that he was a newly married and a a train master on the I think the Frisco, and it's it's two thirty in the morning and the phone rings and and here's here's what Mrs. Starling hears on the other side of the bed. Oh, okay, the train died. The crew died at at uh, at St. Genevieve. Okay, well, take them to a hotel and put them there tonight. We'll worry about it in the morning. Tie tie the train up and we'll call a crew. Thank you. Good night. Silence. <laughs> David, yes, honey. Is that what you do to railroaders who die on the job? Bring them to a hotel and park the bodies. <laughs> it's a good story. Yes, it was. Well, this is this has been a most enjoyable conversation, Fred. Thank you for uh, being a, a guest on on Let's Talk Train Show. 
Um, I've loved it. I've, I've, I appreciate uh, your interest and, and your patience with me as I talk too much, and, and we should do it often. I would hope we can. Uh, there's a number of subjects out there that we haven't even begun to think about or talk about, and I'm sure you could suggest a number of ideas that could also um, make for some very lively and intelligent conversation. Well, and, we uh, talk, also, you give me ideas, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And uh, Ted, Shuttle Train Ted, thank you for co-hosting. Uh, really enjoyed your input. Put a um, um, a different... Uh, some some different ideas together, and thank you very I much for helping me out. I enjoyed it very much. We'll see everybody right. soon. Bye bye, yes. fellas. Bye bye. That's not working. Okay, never mind. And end.